Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Lady Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Jocelyn Pearl, and I have another great interview in store for you guys today. I chat with an associate professor, Dr. Stacey Gorniak from the University of Houston, about her research and her career journey. It's a great conversation, and I can't wait for you to learn from Stacey's experience. Before we jump in, I just want to thank Kendall Investor Relations for supporting this show. And thank you to all of our listeners and subscribers. If you've been enjoying our content so far, please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Today, I welcome Dr. Stacey Gorniak. She's an associate professor at the University of Houston. She studies diseases like diabetic uh, neuropathy and diabetes and uses biomechanics to understand how these different diseases impact men and women and impact their uh, functional independence. And we're going to get into some of the exciting findings from her work today. So welcome, Stacy. Hi. Hi. <laughs> how are you? I'm good. How are you? Doing good. I'm really glad to be here. Thanks so much for joining. So um, can you give us a little bit of background on uh, yourself and kind of your path in science and academia? Yeah, so originally I'm from a small town outside of Erie, Pennsylvania. Um, I went to school originally to be a chemical engineer and ended up um, in physics as a middle ground between my dad wanted an engineer and I was a little bit more drawn to the sciences. Uh, I ended up getting um, a master's and a PhD in kinesiology with a specialization in biomechanics motor control and some work in statistics. And I have a postdoc in biomedical engineering. And how did you first become interested in the biomechanics field? That's a great question because there aren't many of us. I was really interested in medicine, um, particularly when I was younger. And when I first went to um, get my uh, bachelor's degree, I was really interested in going into medicine, going to med school. And part of my undergraduate career, we had to either do an internship or um, research internship within like one of the faculty's labs. And there was an opportunity to do an internship in a children's hospital in a biomechanics lab. And my advisor uh, recommended that I apply for it. And I fell in love with the field from that moment. I just love the blend of both science and clinical environment. And I was just gone from then. Was that first biomechanics lab like? Like what... What type of research were you working on? What, what was it made up of? So it was at a Shriners Hospital. Um, it, was, it was an orthopedic biomechanics lab, uh, primarily to assess movement in children who had cerebral palsy. And so basically assessing their movement patterns prior to surgery to try to um, basically find which muscles were most impacted by the cerebral palsy and determine which course of treatment would be best for them, whether it be surgical tendon lengthening or continued Botox injections to those muscles. That's it. That seems like extreme interventions to me. Just they are. I, and I'm going to preface this. I'm very naive to this field. So I'm going to have a lot of uh, silly questions for you along the way, but um, I'd love to just understand this field more, um, through your eyes and through your experience. So I'm excited to dive into it. 
Um, and fast forward to your work now, are you leading um, a small lab? What What's the makeup of your research team and uh, what's really the focus of your research today? So right now I just have two graduate students with a third on her way. She had some visa issues, um, but I have a very large collaborative like co-I teams where we bring a lot of different techniques together to try to understand um, what I would consider a non-traditional movement disorder, which I would consider type 2 diabetes to be. Um, usually when you're talking about a movement disorder, you're talking about something like stroke or Parkinson's, Huntington's, um, areas like that. So type 2 diabetes hasn't been explored very well as a movement disorder beyond peripheral neuropathy. And so that's what we're working on um, right now. I see. And what are some of the questions around diabetes that your research tries to understand? So when I started this line of research about 10 years ago, um, the predominant clinical opinion was that most functional deficits that you see in persons with type 2 diabetes stems from peripheral neuropathy. And um, I had some evidence um, based on some things that I saw in the lab during my postdoc that that didn't seem to be the case. And so that's where I started about 10 years ago. And within the past about three years, we finally have neuroimaging evidence that there are um, cortical roots of these deficits in persons with type 2 diabetes, specifically in women. We haven't assessed men yet, um, but that sex differences question is something that's become more and more prevalent in the field of uh, metabolic diseases. I've chatted with a couple of researchers who are interested in studying, you know, women's reproduction, and they've spoken about how little funding there is comparatively across, you know, all of these different fields. Can you talk about what percentage in your eyes is focused on some of these sex-based differences and how unique is your, you know, approach? Right now, the way that type 2 diabetes is assessed and clinically treated is that there are no differences between the sexes. However, we're starting to learn that there are differences and there's NIH, for example, is becoming more interested in understanding the despair, the sex disparities um, and health outcomes. But we're really just in some ways at the tip of understanding what these differences are um, because for a long, long time, um, women were not included in um, these basic biomedical studies because estrus and the hormone cycles with menstruation were basically considered as making women too variable to study. And so a lot of the work that we've done over the past several decades have only included men. And so, you know, basing like treatment guidelines and clinical care guidelines and diagnosis guidelines on these characteristics of men, it doesn't translate well to women. And that's why we have under diagnoses for certain disorders, just different presentation symptoms. And it's, it's honestly untangling that is, um, it's going to be a very big task. And finally, some institutes are really starting to, to um, understand that. So the study that we specifically focused on women was funded by the American Heart Association, which um, has supported pretty well um, understanding and um, identifying these deficits in women. You know, they have their Go Red for Women campaign. Um, and it's, I don't know if you know this, but up to 90% of women have a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. 
it is a major killer of women. And so the largest killers of women, isn't it? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Which is kind of shocking, right? (laughs) And, and that just plays into it. Yeah. Um, So So I would say American. Sorry. Is the funding mechanisms starting to catch up with that need to understand this disparity? Slowly. Okay. But there's still a need there. Like we need to do more. We need to understand this more. Right. Absolutely. And there's um, been some changes to NIH standards about including women um, in research and sex as a biological variable. And so they are trying. It's just it's going to take time. But there 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 are new grants, new, you know, efforts yes. to try to to fund this research. That's good to hear. <laughs> At least things are changing a little bit. Um, so getting back to your lab, because I really want to understand this. I work on the molecular biology side, you know, I'm at the wet bench, I have PCRs and that kind of thing, but your lab uses all of these different types of tools. So can you Mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about some of the main ways that you collect data? I saw a video online of a treadmill in your lab. (laughs) So can you tell us about some of these uh, interesting data types that you collect? Yeah, so we have everything that ranges from um, treadmills to uh, infrared cameras that you would see like um, a lot of video game um, producers use motion capture. Sometimes we use that motion capture technology to um, monitor behavior and just how somebody moves in an environment. Um, Sometimes we use miniature uh, forest transducer. So basically embedded in devices so we can see how a person might handle an object in daily life. Um, Sometimes we use iPads, sometimes we use infrared um, in a different way instead of looking at like um, the biomechanical aspect where you're just tracking human motion. There are methods in which you can actually use infrared to penetrate um, tissue and to measure blood flow underneath. Um, that's part of the uh, neuroimaging technique that my lab has been um, working with. The collaborator we work with is Dr. Luca Polanini, um, and he's been absolutely fantastic. And um, just his insights have been actually just really, really incredible for our lab. And he's uh, allowed um, us his uh, expertise in this area so that we can do things like measure muscle non invasively, measure. Um, brain tissue non-invasively and better understand what's going on basically underneath the skin. So when you say measure muscle non-invasively, can you break that down for me a little bit? So when we're doing that, um, you know, we're not taking biopsies. What we're actually doing is um, using technology like you. So you, if you ever look at your iWatch or a watch, something like that. So those are actually like infrared emitters and detectors. And what's happening is that infrared light is basically going through your skin and it's being, um, it it depends on what wavelength it is. It's being scattered and then being reflected back through the skin and um, techniques like FNIRS, which is what we use, so functional near infrared spectroscopy. It's basically bouncing light off of oxygenated blood and deoxygenated blood and understanding, um, you know, the concentrations of those within the muscle um, when are they, when do you see more of one versus the other? There's different, um, 
you can use different wavelengths to, to look at different things. Um, I know some labs are also looking at glycated hemoglobin. So basically like um, how much hemoglobin has sugar attached to it. Um, so there's a lot of different cool things that you can do with these techniques. It seems like you could just tap into this wealth of data across actual people, which is kind of unique considering how much of a reliance we have on animal models for, you know, other areas of research. Is that, is it just a ton of data? Like, do you have to have a massive, you know, server and database to, to hold all of this data? No. So that was one thing um, when I first started about 20 years ago was that, yeah, some of the data sets we were collecting were huge, but as um, computing um, technologies just advanced, um, you know, coming across a one terabyte drive isn't an issue anymore. I mean, we have, you know, eight terabytes and that should get you through a lot. Um, so there are a lot of data sometimes depending on your sample rates. Um, but I would say um, technology is really caught up to where we needed it to, um, to store large amounts of data. And then how do you parse that data? Like, you know, do you work with are you computational or do you work with computational folks who have to kind of deconvolute all of this video and infrared images? <laughs> I just am picturing it being like a massive computational problem. Yeah, no, it's, 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 a, it's a puzzle. And so yeah. we have very powerful software. Um, a lot of us know how to code. So um, being able to you know, program, I use MATLAB a lot. Some people use LabVIEW. Um, and we do a lot of uh, data processing um, to get down to you know, whatever measure that we're interested in. Sometimes we have to filter data. Um, but yeah, that's learning how to program and to deal with raw data is an essential critical skill uh, for an early graduate student in our area. That's neat. What are, you know, are there any other kind of essential critical skills that you look for when you're bringing someone on to, to do this type of work? So programming is definitely big and understanding um, basic math and having a lot of different exposure to different math techniques. Um, those can be taught, um, but you also need to have somebody who can interact with patients very well, right? Um, having that bedside manner, because we do rely on individuals in the community to come in and um, be our test subjects. And so having computational skills, having soft skills, uh, being an excellent communicator and being able to explain to somebody what they're going to encounter during a study um, and being able to answer questions um, that's not to somebody, you know, like their mentor, somebody that has a PhD, but to be able to answer it in a realistic way to somebody in the community. Um, those are skills that um, somebody might not think about um, when they're applying to graduate school, but those are actually very, very important skills. Interesting. That's a really interesting mix of soft skills and technical skills. And I, I can imagine um, it takes a, a certain type of grad student to be able to handle all of that um, fluently. I had a question for you. So I did a little bit of research in the systems biology space. And we are also kind of adjacent to this personalized medicine industry and interacted with some folks that were much more interested in like physiological readouts 
do you consider a lot of this work to be within that or is it is it more I mean I'm just curious about the breakdown of the nomenclature here <laughs> because you're measuring you're taking neuroimaging you're taking um you know all kinds of other types of data from someone as they're moving about in a space is that considered physiology physiology biometrics things like that yes there have been some attempts in our area to use machine learning um, algorithms to generate um, personalized medicine i would say we're still very early on in that space right now um, because of the sheer amount of data that you need to use things, um, different techniques of machine learning. But yeah, a lot of um, what we do has also been termed as uh, uh, biometric analyses I see. in this space. And can you contrast or even just share how you think about these types of measurements compared to something more on like a blood panel or metabolomics or, you know, some of these more molecular analyses. Absolutely. I mean, I think they're complementary. So that's something else that we do in the lab. Um, we do have blood draws. And so we, we do have a collaborator who will assess those for us. You know, we can do something's point of care, like uh, somebody's A1C, their lipids panel, but some of the, you know, we have somebody who does ELISA's and, and all of that for us. But getting into that complementary space is, is an area that I am, I'm currently taking the lab um, because having more information, I think, will help clarify uh, the mechanistic issues that we're really trying to get to. That makes sense. Getting more into the nitty gritty of some of your research findings, um, you shared a recent publication in neurophotonics. I was hoping you can walk us through some of the key findings from that paper. So this was the work that was funded by American Heart Association. And the thing that was really interesting about this is that we focused on women, specifically postmenopausal women, and really trying to better understand um, what the impact of type 2 diabetes is with aging in this population with the assumption that this should be our most impacted population, our most negatively impacted population. And what we actually found was that when we look at um, brain activity during um, tasks that have sensory components like um, tactile vibration and also um, motor components, um, we saw that there were differences in brain activation between the two groups in the motor tasks, but not the sensory tasks. And what was super interesting was that it was um, the neuroimaging marker was the oxygenated hemoglobin. So the oxygenated blood was different. And that was, it was unexpected um, in a way that, well, it wasn't, it wasn't. Listen to this. Um, the oxygenated blood showed a difference, but the deoxygenated blood did not show a difference. And there's been disparity in the MRI literature, like the functional neuroimaging literature, because there's been a lot of null results. The difference in the way that we've approached this is using FNIRS versus fMRI. fMRI really can only um, assess uh, the deoxygenated hemoglobin because there is um, 
paramagnetization there, whereas the oxygenated hemoglobin does not have that type of affinity. And so it's largely undetected. So using this, um, this uh, imaging, this different imaging technique, we were able to actually see that um, the oxygenated blood did what it was different. The, the patterns were different in this population. Nobody had shown that before. Wow. Yeah. So and to clarify, typically in an MRI, the person is not moving. Is that correct? Correct. But with this FNIRS technology, you're able to actually record information as the person's moving? Yes. Fascinating. Additionally, um, you can put this on a person in almost any environment. Um, And if they have like a pacemaker or an implant, like a stent or an artificial uh, limb or joint, it's fine those are people that you can't put in a scanner. And so if you have any type of cardiovascular implant, that automatically excludes you from some of these prior studies. And so um, this gives us a more comprehensive view of the true population. I see. I have a curiosity question for you. So some of my, um, you know, experience with understanding bio mechanical recordings has to do with therapeutics that were developed for, um, for instance, uh, patients who were blind, who are now able to like move through a space. Um, and they're kind of interesting, you know, assays or endpoints that are developed specifically to allow these treatments to be evaluated in clinical trials. Have you had any experience or has your work related in any way to clinical trials or the evaluation of therapeutics? Not in terms of the work that I'm currently doing. It's much earlier on um, in the pipeline. When I was doing my postdoc, it was more assessing actual clinical outcomes based on intervention, um, which helped inform the directions I wanted to go. I would love to get to the therapeutics point um, at some point, but I I am years from that, unfortunately. Getting back to your research path, when did you know that you wanted to pursue a career in, in academic research? So that was a little less clear. I knew that I wanted to go into this area um, and get a graduate degree. I wanted to get my PhD in that. But I wasn't so sure if I wanted to go more of an industry route or an academic route when I was in graduate school. And it took a while, but I just loved being in the academic environment. Um, I thought I would really want to be at a soft money institution. And so that's why I also a clinical institution. So I did my postdoctoral fellowship in a, um, in an institute, a very large clinical institute um, that ran on soft money. Um, I saw upsides, downsides, uh, and decided that really I wanted to be back at an academic institution. I just love the variety um, that I saw day to day in um, academic life, but also um, just there's just something incredible about being able to choose the path of research that you do um, and working with students. I just, I just really loved it. So you love the the kind of freedom aspect of pursuing 
new questions and answering things that have never been answered. <laughs> that and I do I do enjoy the teaching aspect. Oh right. Um, having graduate students um, mentoring, I, I really really enjoy that aspect also. Yeah. Do you teach currently like academic courses? I do. I've taught graduate and undergraduate. Currently, I teach an undergraduate biomechanics class, and I absolutely love it. And as far as your your job search process, what was that like? Um, I assume, how long were you in your postdoc for? Two years. Two so, years. the yeah, the timing of my PhD uh, was not great in terms of the academic market. Um, I defended in 2009 which was right after the 2008 crash. And there were not many jobs at all for about two to three years after. Um, there was a freeze on hiring for most institutions. Um, and then in 2010, 2011, the job started opening up and it was extremely competitive. So um, there, were, there were many applications <laughs> that year. Yeah. Can you give us a sense of how many you applied for, how many you interviewed for? You don't have to share that, by the way. I just, you know, it's one of those things not a lot of people yeah. talk about. So, no, I mean, I think that this is an important thing that, that people should talk about. You know, what are the expectations? What is this truly like? And to be honest, I put out over 20 applications that year um, because maybe in the, the field, total maybe there had been five in the in the previous two years of that mm -hmm. um, and I didn't even bother with those um, so I put out about 20 applications there were three institutions that were um, interested um, and I in-person interviewed at University of Houston and I felt that it was the right place um, that I could get the work that I was interested in done but also um, I never lived in a major city like Houston, and that was that was a big change. Um, but I really appreciated that change, and and I'm I'm glad. What was the interview process like? Did you have to give a chalk talk? You know, how many days was it? Was it grueling? <laughs> in terms of the the interview process, so I had done a phone interview with um, the search committee. This was before the days of Zoom. And um, after that process, they invited me um, to Houston. And so I came down for, I believe it was two days. And um, it was very busy. It was very grueling. It was meetings all the time, meetings all the time. I gave a research talk um, to the entire department. I did not give a teaching talk. Um, the ch for whatever reason, they didn't have, give, have me give a chalk talk. and I. I don't know. Some institutions do, some institutions don't. And how has it been as a PI? What, you know, kind of give us broad strokes, setting up your group and adapting to this life? There are good days and there are bad days. It's pretty rough the first few years trying to understand the system that you have entered into. Um, there could be challenges at all different levels, whether they're administrative, departmental. Um, there could be different rules in terms of like state legislatures. 
um, there's a, a lot of things that are, that are just intersecting, but really your first three years, you're just understanding while you're trying to get your lab up and running, um, learning who to go to for administrative support, um, and also just the political like landscape of the department and the college and the university or whatever institute that you're at. Um, after about three years and like where you go through like your third year review or whatever, like their mid probation review is, um, it becomes a lot clearer as to, you know, this is what I need to do. This is where I need to go. Um, what, what am I not getting done? Um, that being said, it is still very stressful. Um, the last year before you go for tenure, in most cases, it's extremely stressful for most people. And then, um, you know, should things go well <laughs> with tenure, um, which is about a year long process um, and planning for tenure, you really need to keep your eye on the ball, I would say, the entire time. Um, and hopefully you have mentors that will help guide you through that process. I would recommend having several mentors that have different points of view. Um, and not necessarily at your own institution, but from other institutions to help guide you through that process. Um, because really you need to think about what your career is going to be like generally and just not at a single institution. It is an important thing to think about, right? <laughs> yeah. Can you share any particular breakthrough days, really great memories over the years that just you felt really proud of the field that you had entered into and the work that you've done? I think the day that I got my first publication as a senior author, um, to me, that was probably the best feeling and my first grant on my own. Can you share, you know, for the listeners who aren't familiar, the importance of having a senior author publication? Right. So when you're training, typically um, your mentor or your mentors are considered the senior authors on a manuscript. Um, and in my field, they are the, the last authors or the senior authors. And they're the ones that get, quote unquote, the credit for the manuscript because they've guided the research, they've mentored it, they've mentored the actual performance of the research as well as the writing. And they're the ones that basically... Um, or bringing you through the space and, and developing the research. And so when you have your own, your, your first own manuscripts, you're the one that basically has created this project from cradle to grave, and you're responsible for the whole thing. Um, making sure it gets done correctly, making sure that it, um, all the regulatory pieces are there, making sure the data get collected, making sure the manuscript, manuscripts themselves get written, and then um, getting through the publication process, which is not easy. And so that day where you get that first manuscript that you did this successfully on your own, on your own two feet, feels incredible. Absolutely. I want to touch on the, the process of publishing in this field because it's something I recently learned, you know, online that people who aren't familiar with scientific publishing don't necessarily understand what a lengthy process it can be and how how many you know hoops you have to jump through sometimes just to get a paper out. So can you share what your experience has been like and maybe you know 
what a what a bad experience would look like just for people to get a sense of um, how long it can really take to get some of this research out into the world. All right. So best case scenario, the first journal you choose and you submit to. So there's when you submit, there's multiple documents that they can ask for. Um, so just the submission itself after you write the entire manuscript. I mean, it can take days to just get done. Um, so once you submit it, if things go really well, maybe you'll have a, um, a first decision. And when I say first decision, it's when the editor comes back and says, um, either yes or no, or like a straight up yes or no, a straight up yes is very rare. I've only ever had it happen once in my career. And I was surprised when it happened. Um, a no is just a, a straight up rejection. Um, the journal's not a good fit, or we just, you know, there are too many issues with this manuscript. We, we don't want to see it in this journal. Um, a revise and resubmit major revisions, minor revisions is more likely. Um, on, I would say best case scenario that would happen in about four weeks. I haven't seen that timeline happen quite some time. It's closer to six weeks, eight weeks anymore, especially with the pandemic, it's even longer than that. Um, so in some cases, just hearing back from your first journal, if you don't get a desk reject, for those of you who aren't familiar with the desk reject, that's just where the editor or associate editor takes a look at the title, um, the abstract, and makes a decision, yes or no, this doesn't fit with the journal. If it's a no, you get that usually within two weeks of submission. So you know pretty quickly. If it's not a desk reject, I mean, your entire um, just first submission could take two months. Um, and then you would have to resubmit if you get invited for the uh, revise and resubmit. You could go through a second review. I know some people that have gone through three or four reviews. Um, and that's just with the first journal. Um, and so it could take anywhere from, I would say, two to three months to a year if things go well. If you get multiple desk rejects, then you're going to try to add a different journal. And sometimes you're just, you're just cracking at it for, it can, it can be years. Yeah. Unfortunately. What is your publication strategy like with regards to impact factor and, you know, efficiency of getting papers out? Do you have a particular strategy that you use? I really just try to go with the best fit with the topic of the paper and where I think the best journal is. And I'll go with that one first. Um, and then usually I'll have like an idea, okay, if that doesn't work, we'll go here, here. Um, I do try to keep in mind, <clears throat> not only just, you know, the best fit of the paper, um, what's reputable, what are people reading? Um, impact factor, it's not so much um, something I pay a very large amount of attention to because I, you know, I haven't, I haven't published in science and nature at this point. Maybe I will someday, maybe I won't. Um, but I'm still doing really, really solid research that is valued um, in certain journals and certain communities and communicating that is really important. Um, and just knowing, you know, who to get your science out to is sometimes the most important piece and not necessarily the impact factor of the journal. Do you 
make an effort to communicate the research through conferences or what are some of the other modes of communication that you rely on? Conferences, for sure. Um, that's been, for me, probably the best way. However, with the pandemic, that has changed because so many conferences are going virtual. Um, I don't know how many of your followers are in neuroscience, but it was maybe two days ago they pulled out from having an online or a, a, a fully in-person conference, and now it's completely online. Right, and, the SFN conference. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I saw a few tweets around that. I didn't like, I normally, I used to attend SFN every year, but um it was it was a big deal right because a lot of people had made travel plans and were traveling from far off places is that accurate yeah yeah i had a student my most senior student he was looking forward to going and he was um he's looking for a postdoc so he was pretty disappointed wow and it the conference is happening when exactly it was supposed to happen about a month from now. Okay. And they yeah. just decided to make it virtual. It was going to be virtual for three days and then in person for three days or four days. Mm -hmm. um, but they're only going to do the virtual option now. Wow. Crazy times. <laughs> yeah. I definitely miss, miss conferences. So hopefully they'll be back soon. I wanted to ask you about another paper of yours. You had a paper uh, trying to understand the impact of heart failure on functional independence, which I thought was a really interesting study. And obviously we, we touched on, you know, cardiac disease impacting so many people. Can you talk about the goal of that study and what some of the findings were? So great news, you found Hidetaka Hibino's dissertation topic. So that was the student who was looking forward to going to the neuroscience conference this year. Um, so as he's been in my laboratory, he's been very interested in the intersection of sensory motor function and cognitive impairment. And um, people might not know this, but individuals with heart failure struggle with cognitive impairment. And he really thought about that and how much that, imp that impacts um, sensory motor function. And so that paper is actually a review paper that sets up his entire dissertation. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And so he's done some of that research now in your lab? He has piloted a few subjects and he is getting ready to propose his dissertation here, um, hopefully by the end of this year. Exciting. So he'll be looking for research. He'll be looking for research subjects for that that study very soon. Awesome. Is there a particular way that people can find out about this study? So um, usually, um, I'll probably put something up on Twitter if anybody's interested. Um, we do sometimes advertise through Twitter. Um, other times, I will. I've started using Facebook actually. Um, Facebook pages for our studies. And so people can contact us directly through Facebook um, to learn more about the things that we're doing in the laboratory um, for our various studies. Nice. Yeah, because we can always link any of these materials as well for, for folks listening and um, wanting to participate. I know it's a it's great to get more people involved. And I imagine that the, the research becomes more robust as you have additional subjects. 
Absolutely. Um, getting back to kind of your career and you know your journey from postdoc to associate professor, have there been any particular um, support systems that you've relied on over the years that you could talk about um, that might help others going through this process? So one of the things that I've really appreciated is mentorship by other women in sciences. Um, I was fortunate enough that I there was a senior female researcher in my department who really took me under her wing when I first arrived. And she introduced me to other uh, female scientists within Houston. And just that was absolutely invaluable. Um, and then from that, getting connected with certain um, regional institutions like the Gulf Coast Consortium for Quantitative Biomedical Sciences. Um, that has been an absolute lifesaver also here in Houston. It's just helped with networking, getting a better understanding of the different major institutions, um, making friends, making excellent connections within the community. Um, I would say that those two uh, were really critical to my success here in Houston. And do you have any any particular advice for women starting down this path or researchers in general? It's <laughs> a really big question. Yeah. <laughs> I just always like uh, to ask because you never know what people are gonna say and you know, it might help someone. So one of the things that I've learned, um, so I'm actually so I think the one thing I would say is that mentoring just doesn't stop when you become a faculty member. I mean, I'm still mentored today and some of the best mentors I've ever had don't come from a background like mine. They don't look like me. They aren't, you know, they're from a completely different population. And so having mentors that have a very different experience can be very invaluable because they can help you see the world in eyes that you've never even thought about. Um, and some of the shared experiences you may have, you just never would have thought of. And so I would say, seek out a diverse pool of mentors and don't stop growing. Um, don't stop challenging yourself because it is a hard road, but you still gotta grow. On that note, how do you hope to grow your lab and your research and what are some of your dreams for the future? I would really love to get into just some really, really large studies in terms of like, but multi-level understanding, right? So like integrated physiology, you know, interleaving, not just like molecular things, but understanding how sleep processes impact these things, just really building that collaborator network and having very comprehensive um, research lines. I think that that's where we're going in science, just really collaborative and comprehensive science. And that's, that's where I want to go. Um, I'm building for that now and I'm, I'm hopeful. That's awesome. I love that. Sleep is so important too, for so many, you know, so many, many of these disorders that you touched on already, Huntington's disease and Parkinson's and many psychiatric disorders, even, you know, um, it's really tied into how um, efficiently people are sleeping and able to sleep. And if they can't sleep, 
that having impacts on, you know, cognitive function and all of these other things. So I think it's such an important area of research. Um, and I think it's admirable to really want to tie all of these different inputs together and understand, um, you know, maybe even some of these early signals, um, for instance, with diabetes um, or, you know, signals that we didn't necessarily think of ahead of time with regards to cardiac arrest and um, independence. So I think it's a really exciting area of research and I think will be illuminating for so many people suffering from these illnesses. I hope so. I hope so just to create like a small piece towards that. Yeah, you are. <laughs> that wraps up my interview with Dr. Stacy Gorniak. Stacy, thank you so much for being on the show. And to all of our listeners, thanks for listening. If you're interested in this field, check out Stacy's links below. And if you're interested in neuroscience, I recommend you check out the episode I did with Dr. Konika Rajan. It's a really interesting one in the field of neuroscience and artificial intelligence. Thank you again for supporting Lady Scientist Podcast.